0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Psalm
1: 133. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Let's pray. Father, we hear the words of this psalm again how good, pleasing, pleasant it is when brothers, sisters, when your people dwell together in unity. You have made a people, God. We acknowledge that and we say thank you for it. We've sung of it. We've prayed and praised you for it and we acknowledge it again out loud. You have made a people. It is your doing. You've gathered a people and our gathering of people all across the globe from every tongue and tribe and nation, a people that spans time throughout the generations, one people. And here in this place, you've gathered some of that people together to be a little local people. You've gathered together a church, a local family, expressing your kingdom here in this place. You have done that It is a work that is marvelous in your sight and in ours when we think about it. And you tell us that it would be pleasant and pleasing, marvelous, if we would dwell together in unity. And so while acknowledging and thanking you for the work that you've done, we ask you to do more. We ask you to bring about that which you want. A dwelling in unity. We ask you to bring about a people who live together in a loving, gracious harmony. Who don't just live beside, but who live with one another. That would be a sweet thing. That would be a supernatural thing. And so we ask you, Father, would you do that? And would you use the passage here this morning? In that work, use it to move us a little bit towards that end, Lord. We acknowledge that if all we have here are words, and all I'm going to say are English words. So, God, we need Your Spirit. We need Your Spirit to take words, and give life to them, and change each individual here, and therefore change us corporately. Make us different. You use the truth but you must do a work with the truth and birth with it and renew with it transform with it. So Father what we're asking you to do is is to take that which you have done and to do more on top of it to bring about your desired will by your power among your people for your glory. That you would be pleased and to see this pleasant people dwelling together in unity, and that we would be blessed by that. We would experience humanity as you mean it to be. We need you to do this, Lord, and so we ask for it, and we pray that you would illumine your word this morning a little bit towards that end, that you would help us to focus on it, that you would give me a mind that's focused, what I feel so distracted, and we as listeners will often feel distracted. Give us attention to your word. Father, commission the Spirit to move among us and give life to change, to grow us, to hold up Christ and draw us to him and to to create a conformity in each of us to him. We look to you for that now and, and pray, thankful that you are more committed to brothers dwelling together in unity than we are. So bring about your word, Lord, we pray. And in Christ's name, for Christ's glory, and Christ's church, we pray it. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to Philippians chapter 2. And by this point in the letter, we've come to the beginning of chapter 2, we've come to the point where Paul has now fully turned his attention on to the affairs of the church at Philippi he began the letter you'll recall focused mostly on himself on his own situation his own perspective on his own imprisonment and upcoming trial what he thought of that what he expected to happen and how as he looked over all of his life he rejoiced in the fact that Christ was exalted in everything and would continue to be exalted in everything live or die No matter what happens in the verdict of the trial, Christ will be exalted in his life, and he's delighted because Paul's about Christ. He doesn't know what's going to happen exactly, but he does expect to be let go, and he does expect to come back and live among the church with his friends there. But at verse 27, as he begins to turn the focus from himself to them, he writes a very important statement for the whole rest of the book, in fact. He says that whether he comes or, or not, whether he's released or not, he wants one thing, and he, and he draws their attention in, and focuses it in, and then gives a command. Only this. Very central, very critical statement. Only this. Live as worthy of the gospel citizens. The word citizens isn't in most of our translations, but that was kind of the point. Live as worthy of the gospel citizens. Live as citizens who are worthy of, of this gospel message. Not just as citizens of Rome, but citizens of the gospel. That was his central point. And then he begins to elaborate on that and tell them some of what that looks like. Is a unity with the accompanying characteristics of standing in the Spirit, arm linked as they contend for the gospel. He kind of moves off to begin to speak about evangelism and, and suffering. Saw some of that. Touched on the unity, but he left it. But then, he's not done with that, he's going to come back to it, which is what brings us to our passage this morning. He's not done talking about unity in the church. Kind of got sidetracked a little bit. But he comes back, beginning of chapter 2, to talk more about what this unity that he's after looks like. And it's accompanying characteristics of love and humility and other-centeredness. And in fact, he's going to lift up Christ as the perfect example of that. That's going to come next week. This morning in verses 1 to 4, he's going to call us to such a unity, call us to such a life. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 4, and and again, we have a long sentence. This is one great big kind of rambling sentence that's broken up in our English into many different points, but it's one sentence. I'm going to read all of it and then make three observations from it. But put all together, here's the main point that I'm working towards for this morning. A gospel-worthy people, you hear that same idea from chapter 1, verse 27, a gospel-worthy people is a humble, other-centered, united people. That's the point I'm working towards this morning. A gospel-worthy people is a humble, other-centered, united people. Let me read verses 1-4 through of chapter 2, and then as I said, I'll make three observations from it. Verse 1, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We'll stop there this morning. I'm going to make three observations. Here's the first one. Gospel-worthy citizenship begins by considering the effects of the gospel. Gospel. Gospel-worthy citizenship begins by considering the effects of the gospel. And I say gospel-worthy citizenship because the verse begins with so. There's a linkage here. He's pointing us back to the main command that he gave us in verse 27 before he kind of got sidetracked into evangelism and suffering. Remember how when we are up in verse 27, we actually looked down here into this passage and noticed the connections. He talks about the spirit in both places, and particularly unity and the single mindedness in both places. So he's got the same idea in, in verse 27, and then back here in our passage, he's returning back to the argument that he started in verse 27. He's coming back to it. I want you to walk, here, just this one thing, only this. I want you to walk in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. So. If you're going to do that, that's the train of thought. It comes into verse 1. So, we have to begin by considering the effects of the gospel. So, if, and I know there is, if there is any, any of the following, and he lists four phrases. Which one on top of the other, on top of the other, on top of the other, creates a very powerful rhetorical building punch here just with how he lines up these phrases one on top of the other, on top of the other, on top of the other if all of this and this and this and this he's got a lot of rhetoric built into this then what follows in 2, 3, and 4 it's one great big if-then sentence so he's, he's built this in a very powerful way made even stronger by the reference of the Trinity that's in this verse There's a lot of debate about how these four phrases in verse 1 work together. But I think that as we read through it, Paul intends for us to be hearing a reference to each member of the triune God. There is only one God, only one God who forever exists in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And Paul wants us to be thinking, as we're working through this, this lead-up to the, what he wants us to do, he wants us to be thinking about how each member of this one triune God has interacted with us to bless. These are the blessings poured out by each one of the members of the Trinity. We begin with something that comes to us from the, the Son, Christ. The third thing is something that we experience in the Spirit, literally fellowship. Some of our translations say participation. Participation. And right in the middle, the middle one, love, he doesn't exactly say of God, but I think that's because of how he's structured this. It's something of something, something of something, something of something. And if he were to put something of something of something, it would break the flow. But he knows we'll follow with his language because this is very common Pauline language. In fact, if you were to look at the very end of 2 Corinthians, the very end of 2 Corinthians, you would notice... Paul concludes that letter by saying, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Very similar wording. Very similar order. Spirit, Father, Son. Son, Father, Spirit. This is Pauline language, and he knows they'll pick up on that and they'll hear, this is the triune God drawing near to meet and to bless. We'll get to the fourth phrase in a little bit, but these first three phrases are laying on us aspects of blessing from God to believers. So think about them. We have experienced encouragement in Christ, or we could translate that comfort or consolation. Encouragement's fine as long as we understand that we're not talking about the sort of encouragement that's a you can do it sort of encouragement. It's consolation or encouragement that is a, a giving of hope, rest to a heart that's in the middle of feeling troubled and overwhelmed or despairing and lost. That, that kind of encouragement. Rest. Hope. In Christ. If you are a Christian. You are in Christ. You've been included, joined to Him, and now exist as if in a sphere that is Christ and in Christ, joined with Him. It is all right. It's okay. Whatever it is, you're okay. Beginning with the moment that real despair first hit you. And I mean real despair. When you first realized, Christian, when you first realized that you yourself were hopeless and lost because you were a sinner before a holy God, When you first saw hell yawning open in front of you and you justly headed there and looked up at a God whose eyes were alight with fury and you despaired of all hope. That's hopelessness. That's lostness. And from that very moment, in that very moment, Jesus, the Son, stepped in and in grace grabbed you and said to you, it's all right. Take heart. Find consolation in me in front of all this despair and then everything after it. From that very first moment, the gospel of God's grace has included you in Christ and therefore has spoken over your life. A profound Christian, do you grab this? A profound, it's okay. You are safe in Christ by grace. Blessing of the gospel poured on you. You need not worry. You need not struggle to protect yourself or cover yourself, take care of your own desires and your own needs and your own reputation. That's going somewhere. All of this is going somewhere. Paul's going somewhere with this. But to get there, you must first consider the effects of the gospel. You are all right. You have no need to protect, no need to fight, no need to struggle, no need to fear, no need to take care of yourself. You can let it all go. Be encouraged. Take comfort. Be consoled in Christ. Okay. <sighs> okay. Is there any encouragement in Christ? If you're a Christian, the answer is yes. Even if you're not walking in it and living in it and haven't ever thought about it, it's still true. It's still okay. He still has his hand on you. You still are safe, even if you don't think so. Is there any encouragement in Christ? Yes. And you have comfort from love, from the love of God, as I said. He assumes we'll track here and know the love of God and know the comfort that is in God's love. Think about Ephesians 3 and the the wide, long, high, deep love of God. There is a love that because of the gospel rests on and runs like a rushing river onto you day by day, hour by hour, Christian. A love that is of incomprehensible breadth. How wide is it? It is a love that is wider than any troubling flood can spread that would ever threaten you. It is a love that is of incomprehensible length. It goes on longer. It keeps going on longer, longer, longer than any threat can endure. How high is it? It is a love that is of incomprehensible height, taller than any mountain of challenge that you might face and cannot climb on your own. And it is a love that is deeper than any ocean of sorrow. It is a love that is wide and long and high and deep, and it is incomprehensible, but can you comprehend it? Paul prays that you would have strength to comprehend it, to know just some of it, to know some of how wide and long and high and deep this love is. It is poured out on you in the gospel. You have been cleansed by Christ's blood and removed from the wrath of God and placed in a standing where the love of God showers you constantly, never leaving you, never forsaking you. Christian, is there any comfort from love? Yes. Indeed. And you have fellowship with the Spirit. Primarily meaning fellowship with God in the Spirit. And of course it does mean that there's fellowship with other Christians, but he's coming to that. He's not starting with that. He's coming to that. He's laying the ground for that. He's he's right now talking about fellowship, participation with God in the Spirit, saved by Christ, joined to God with the Spirit dwelling in you. Christian, something has happened to you that is remarkable. You are not a a person that got something glued onto the side of you. You are not a person that got a hat put on you. You are not a person that even put on a different colored shirt. You are not a person that rides around in a different type of vehicle. You are a person who has been indwelt and changed. You are a spiritual person, a person. Spiritual people, no longer carnal, to use the words of the Bible, no longer merely fleshly, but spiritual, which means you are different. You have been changed in a a complete way, not in in totality, but in a complete way, such that you are now, think of a newborn baby. A newborn baby is totally unlike a tree, totally unlike a rock, totally unlike a, a cat. Thank goodness. But a newborn baby is is not as mature and and as understanding as a teenager or as an adult or as an elderly person, but it's of the same kind, totally different than the other. You have been changed and made a spiritual person. As you have now participation in the Spirit, you are God-connected. You are other world-connected. You have power to be different. You are no longer bound by death and bondage, no longer obligated to sin, no longer limited by by the horizon of this world. You can relate to God. You have a mind that understands spiritual truth. You know where this is all going. You know what's going on right now. You see temptation for what it is. You notice deception in things that other people call truth. You see, you understand, you have life. You're different. Maybe not as much as you should be. But you're different. A light has gone on. A life has come. A friend has drawn near. Glory shines in front of your eyes and then even within you. Do you have any participation in the Spirit? Yes. Even if you're still a baby. Even if you're inappropriately still an adolescent, you are different. This all the triune God has delivered into you, has put on you when he saved you. This is the work of God in the gospel for you. The effects of God's gracious gospel work. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, if there is any participation in the Spirit, come to the fourth one. It's different than the other three. The structure is not the same. Even grammatically, it's different. This of this, this of this, this of this. Now, the fourth one's different. It's just two characteristics sympathy and affection. It's because he changes his focus. He's been talking about what the triune God has done, and now he's adding in a personal component. If you have any sympathy, any affection, he means, for me, locked away in this prison. And we know he means that because of the very next verse, complete my joy. He wants them to do something for him. Now, that's no problem because it's actually quite clearly for God. But he wants to hear, you'll recall from verse 27, I want to hear of you that you are standing firm. I want to hear this about you. Well, have any affection for me? Any love for me? Then make my joy complete by... He's going to talk about what he wants them to do. He adds in a personal component here in the fourth point, but the main emphasis throughout verse 1 is Paul winding up and preparing to call us to live as citizens worthy of the gospel. But that all begins by talking about The gospel. What God the Son and God the Father and God the Spirit has done to you, not for the purpose of laying on a guilt trip. You've, all, I mean, not any of us, not any of our parents, but you know of people who say, "Man, I gave birth to you, and I." I sustained you through all these years. The least you could do is whatever. That's not how God works. God's not laying out or lining up the effects of the gospel to say, well, the least you could do then is... No. He's telling us what has happened to lift up your minds so that you leave here and look here and you see, oh, that, oh, and realize, well, that then is how I should walk. That then is what is appropriate. That then is marvelous and wonderful. It tells me everything about God, and everything about me that I need to know. It's, it's akin to saying, just a simple example. It, it's, it's akin to saying something like, if you have been, to a person who has been, if you have received a job transfer to the Caribbean, And if that job is sure, and if the average annual low temperature is 78 degrees, <laughs> then leave the snow shovel in Minnesota. Buy a broad-brimmed hat and go. He's standing at the person right beside the, the U-Haul or the moving crate with the shovel and says, Friend, if you, and I know you have been, if you have been transferred to Barbados, and if that job, you really got that job, and if the, it's 78 degrees cold there. You don't need the shovel. You don't leave the shovel behind to say thank you. You leave the shovel behind because you don't need it. That's how he's lining this up. Not to guilt you into walking with the gospel-worthy life that he wants, but to show you this is true. Leave the shovel. You don't need it. But here's what is appropriate. The second point. Gospel-worthy citizens live with each other in unified, purposeful love. So what he's moving to now is the then half of the sentence. If is verse 1, then is what follows. And he's going to say, here's what the life that's appropriate, the life that is that gospel-worthy life, here's what it looks like. Here's what should naturally come. Here's what's appropriate. Gospel-worthy citizens live with each other in unified purposeful love verse 2 is the beginning of the van and he actually starts with a very personal complete my joy then but here's what he really wants by the simple statement being of the same mind That's what would make Paul happy, but we need to understand something, that if Paul says, this is what would cause my joy to be increased in full, that he really means God. This is what would delight God and should delight us. This is what's appropriate. By being of the same mind. And he's going to spend two and a half verses unpacking that. But simply put, Gospel worthy citizens live together as a church, all together, of the same mind. Which is not just an intellectual issue, it's not just about intelligence, knowledge, facts, theology, doctrine, or opinion. There is an element of that. We we must all know doctrine. We must be thoughtful about doctrine. And as we are knowing and thinking about doctrine, there will be an increasing uniformity of thought and opinion, particularly about central, critical things. That's true, but that's not really what he's after. There's much more in his mind than that. Of the same mind, and then he's going to spell out beneath that what that looks like. So structurally, of the same mind, you get three things underneath of it. That is having the same love, being one souled. It's a literal rendering of the, of, of a, uh, of full chord in full accord, one souled, intent on one purpose, having one mind. I say all those words because our different translations rendered that differently. Same love, same soul, one mind, which is slightly different than where he started with talking about same mind. You've got to follow this closely. I wish I could write this down and you could see it. One mind is different than same mind, where he began. One mind is single-mindedness, one purpose, one intent. So when he talks about a church that is same-minded, what he means is there is a, a love that unites same soul around a purpose. A single goal. It is a loving, unified, purposeful people same-minded church. If you think about this, it means you can't adequately do this if you live in different parts of the country. Because you can't show this love. You can't be a people that are are displaying a same-souledness. You can agree on the same points, but you don't have a way to love each other from a distance. You can't even do it if you're in the same city, in different places. There's got to be a togetherness if we're going to love one another, if we're going to display a same solidness and live towards a similar purpose. There's got to be a togetherness here. A proximity. What Paul and God is after is a loving, harmonious union. If you were to see that, it would be a people where the love of God is known by individuals and then displayed by individuals to other people in the congregation such that this place feels like, it smells like, it looks like how God loves people. It looks like, it feels like, it smells like how a people who have a a common participation in a common God are themselves in common. It looks like, it feels like, it smells like a people who, like God has a goal, have a goal. The same one that God has. So to put it another way, it's a people who together love each other with an agenda. And when I say that, I'm deliberately trying to confront something. Because there, there is always, uh, in, in Christian circles and in the world, in fact, there is always a feeling that if, if we are to be about, or if someone is to be about with me, loving me, then what they are doing really is they are looking at me and they are affirming and encouraging me with whatever I am and whatever I'm about. And so if I don't feel the love, what I mean is I don't feel the acceptance. I'm not saying that's how you're thinking, but I'm saying that that is a dominant idea. That to be a loving people, to feel the love, is to, is to be a group of people that say, they're there, yes, way to go. And never, no. That's wrong. I want to confront that idea by pointing out if we are to be a people who, like God, love who have found comfort in the love of God and therefore then love one another with this same love. We are going to love with an agenda. We are going to be a people who, like God, reach into a place wherever that person is right now for the purpose of extending a hand out and pulling him, pulling her towards something. Not leaving him or her there, but pulling him towards what? Towards Christ. That's how God loves people. To reach, to grab, and to change them. He has an agenda. That's the one purpose. We are people who are together, of one accord, united, loving each other with a single purpose. To reach out, to grab one another, and maybe others who are not yet here, to grab one another and pull them with singular focus, with singular, singular goal towards Christ, the gospel would be dominant in this one's life and in that one's life and in this one's life. That's our one purpose. And to love each other is to carry out that agenda in each other's lives. Follow that. It is not loving if we were to become a people that was incredibly kind and polite and gracious with no agenda. That let people stay where they were, oftentimes that's a lot easier. Because people don't like to be told they're wrong. And it's messy because sometimes I don't know if they're wrong. And I might have to engage and find out in dialogue. That's really complicated. Let me just say, way to go, and walk away. Lots easier. Unloving. True, loving unity has a single purpose. It has an agenda, namely the Gospel. We are to be lovingly, harmoniously united in the pursuit of that goal for each other that Christ would be all in your lives and in mine. That's what the church is for. That Christ would be all in the lives of those here and in the lives of those that he is calling in for the glory of Christ and for the good of the people. That's the agenda that the church marches forward with in love on. In other words, the church is about God and the gospel in people's lives. That's what love is. So are we about this? He wants a church. He says that what it means to walk in a manner that's worthy of the gospel, what it means to be an individual or a people that that would delight Paul, that would delight God, is for there to be a church that is of same-mindedness, that is, loves one another, is united around a purpose. So are we about that? The purpose of the gospel. Well, we are officially, but there might be a large gap between what we are officially and what we are practically, or perhaps what some of us are practically. Officially, we exist, I stole this phrase from someplace else, verbatim, so I'm not claiming to be original in this. We exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of God. That's about God. in all things. it's in all of life, so there's our agenda. The supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples in Christ. That's people. In Christ, there's the gospel. Finding the supremacy of God and delighting in it. I took that from somewhere else. That's officially why we're here, but but is that why we're here? It has to be. Not the wording's optional, but this has to be. Has to be what the church is about. Together, one accord, one sold. Loving with a purpose, the gospel, in our lives, and then extending out to other people. That's the church that pleases God. Gospel-worthy citizens live with each other In unified, purposeful love. And the final observation then. Gospel worthy citizens are humble servants of each other. This, I think, gets us moving towards how do we actually behave, living out what verse 2 is about. Gospel-worthy citizens are humble servants of each other. Verses 3 and 4, they're still a part of this same long sentence, but most of our English translations break it up and make separate sentences of them, but they're still all tacked on to the same main idea. This is what gospel-worthy citizens look like. They are together. They are of the same mind, which looks like this. Negatively speaking, verse 3, nothing from rivalry or conceit. It's really quite powerful in the original because it just skips immediately to nothing. There's no verb. Nothing from rivalry, nothing from conceit. There's no place among Christians and no place in a church for the advancing of one's own cause, for the championing of, of, of my own self, my own acclaim, my own status. Me up against you down. Rivalry, proud conceit, a focus on me. Literally, it's the pursuit of vain glory, which is a great word. That which seems to be glorious but isn't. It's in fact shameful. None of that in the church. Which, I imagine, most of us probably agree with. I'd be quite surprised if somebody didn't. Most of us don't think anything that we do is from rivalry or conceit, because those are ugly words. And we are probably inclined to say amen or to wag our fingers along with this verse. Yeah, nothing from rivalry or conceit, especially where I saw it in that other person last week. It's kind of how we are. But it's just possible that there is more rivalry or conceit in us than we realize. And Maybe it's not the proud, chest-thumping sort, but it is perhaps present in subtle ways. So explore it just a little bit, because this is, this is going to work so contrary to anything that is about love and harmonious union. Rivalry and conceit are, are death to that, which is why he condemns it. So think for a second. Do you find yourself jealous of other churches, of other ministries, of other ministers, of other servants in the church? When so-and-so does well, do you find, even in just your mind, a little bit of a... Little things like, somebody I know through distant connections, but I know this person. I saw in print somewhere that he'd written a book, and it was published, and I thought, I thought, not... Praise the Lord for truth coming out into the church. (laughs) This this is the kind of thing that stinks up on you like that, and you realize, whoa, there's a little window into my heart. I saw his name, I saw the book, and I thought, (laughs) ugh. Why? Because it wasn't me. How ugly is that? Oh, but I don't, I don't do anything from rivalry or conceit. I mean, that's clearly forbidden. That's wrong. Until I get snuck up on and surprise by this acquaintance publishing a book and a little bit of a... <clears throat> or so-and-so successfully doing this, that, or the other. Or, or maybe for you, it's you used to be in charge of the whatever, and somebody else did it once, and everybody loved it. How about in conversation? Simple examples. If you ever find yourself in a conversation where somebody misrepresents you harmlessly, but in a way that makes it seem like you didn't understand something, or mistakenly attributes something to you that wasn't actually true, and and politely but quickly you correct them so that it doesn't seem like you didn't understand that. They don't need to know. Who cares? You need them to know you care or maybe conceit shows itself in conversation where you just repeatedly draw the focus onto yourself my thoughts my insights the theological truths that I've learned the details about my ailments my troubles my stuff, my job, I need to share them and you need to hear them. So we're going to have a conversation where I talk and you listen until I'm done talking, that's when you're done listening. (laughs) It's about me. Very subtly. And actually, ironically, The same thing can be true of the person who never says a word in conversation. can be just as conceited because all of what talking would be would be to put out my stuff and to risk being wrong or to risk revealing something that others don't accept and don't find right. And so I just don't say anything so I can be remaining content in my superiority or my safety. We could go on. We could talk about lots of other things. The point is it's just possible that when Paul slams down none of this and none of this, and we say, yeah, that some of that's us. It's just possible there's more rivalry and conceit in us than we realize and its death to a church. None of that, but rather, in humility, Count others more significant than yourselves. This is the opposite. This is what appropriately characterizes citizens of the gospel, God's kingdom. Humble, other centered service. With humility, count all others more significant than yourselves, which is very wide. It's total, in fact. What Paul's saying is, every other person in the church, they're above you. Count it like that in your mind. Happily, humbly so. Count it, consider it such that you are the lowliest of the low, and you exist here in this church, or it applies in a family also, but... He's talking about churches. You exist here in this church as the lowliest of servants and there is no reason you think, you assume, and you completely, happily, readily believe there is no reason that anything here would be built around me according to satisfying my needs, according to what I want, how I think things should be. Instead, I look out and I should find countless opportunities to die to myself in service to every single other person here. That's the next verse. Considering not just your own needs, but the needs of others. So I have this attitude of humility that counts them greater than me. And then verse 4, I'm looking for their needs so as to meet them. Can you imagine a church like that? Or a family like that? A place where everybody is running racing to serve and die to self with a mind that is humbly submissive and humbly serving. Seeking in every possible way. Not, let me tell you about my things, but tell me. How are you? Who are you? What are your needs? What's going on? With an agenda in mind. Because I want to help you, brother or sister, find Christ. To grow in union with him, to grow up from baby to toddler to adolescent to adult. If there's any possible way that I can help you with that, I want to. So so let me engage with your life for your good. And you find that actually they're stumbling over themselves to do the same for you. What a church. What a church. That's what Christian maturity looks like. Turning away from self towards others because, here's where it loops back around, because I really, 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 really really, honest to goodness have found encouragement in Christ. Comfort in the love of God participation, fellowship in the Spirit. I have found it. I see it. I know it. I don't need to protect myself. I don't need to draw the attention onto me. I don't need, but I have much to give. I have union with a God who is far greater than you know. Let me give Him to you. I'm drawing life out of a well that's far deeper than you could ever provide for me. So I don't come to you needing, I come to you to give. This is what Christian maturity, Christian maturity that that sits and soaks deeply in in a great God is turned away from self towards a world in need because of the depth and the breadth and the height and the goodness of this God. Church, church, Come alive to him and grow in him and know him deeply and give yourself away to each other. And the whole problem with not doing it is not that you behave inappropriately. It's that you don't believe him enough and don't know him deeply. So may God open your eyes and may you trust him. May you see the effects of the gospel and then humbly seeing who you were and who he is and all that he's given you Humbly give it all away. Uh. It's an awesome life. It's an awesome life. Can you imagine being a part of a church like that? Can you imagine being a part of a family like that? Can you imagine yourself living like that? where you get up in the morning and you honest to goodness believe, I don't have to hold on to my life. I've been changed in a way that I can't get away from if I try. I'm different, and I step out of the bedroom into a world that needs God. And I have Him. So, with that agenda, I want to go out and connect to this people that He's gathered me together with, humbly loving them towards the one they need. It's an awesome life. So, live pursuing your own encouragement and your own comfort and your own peace, your own union with God. Live pursuing that, not from other people, but from God, so that you have a depth of life to give away. Gospel-worthy citizens are humble servants of each other, Gospel-worthy citizens live together in harmonious, loving, purposefulness because gospel-worthy walking citizens have really, 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 really grabbed the content of the Gospel. And it has taken over their lives. And they are sold to it for their good and for the glory of God and for the blessing of the body of Christ. It's an awesome, an awesome life. This is the kind of church that would please the Apostle Paul. More than that, pleases God and would be pleasure for us too. So step into it. Give yourself to God in pursuit of Him. Notice where conceit and rivalry rise up in you. And put those to death by turning to God and believing the Gospel and all of its promises poured on you. Encouragement and comfort and participation. Take a few minutes, reflect now. Think through what God needs to do in your life. And then we'll close
0: in prayer. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission.